And so scripture alone must be our authority as to what we believe about heaven. On that day when Jesus encountered Nicodemus and telling him how to get into heaven, he said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. He's reminding Nicodemus that he alone has authority and validity to speak about how to get to heaven because he came from heaven that heaven is indeed his home, and so he can tell him with great authority how it is to go there. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Today's sermon is entitled, our father's house john chapter 14 verses 1 through 2 say do not let your heart be troubled believe in god believe also in me in my father's house there are many rooms if that were not so i would have told you because i am going there to prepare a place for you today pastor carl will detail from the scriptures the size of the father's house let's join pastor carl now as he begins Take God's word, would you? Revelation chapter 21, it's easy to find. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And if you're here for the first time, I'm doing a series, we're almost completed, called God's Prophetic Schedule. This is actually the 30th message in this series. We began with the rapture of the church and the rebirth of Israel. And while the rapture, the catching up into the air can happen at any moment, it's a signless event. The second coming is prophetically driven. Much has to happen. And one of the keys for the second coming to happen is Israel must be back in the land. God could have certainly raptured the church at 1000 AD, gathered the Jews from the nations across the planet, brought them back in and unfolded the schedule. But he didn't. He waited nearly two millennia. And in his sovereignty and providence, he has regathered and reinstituted them as a nation. And that should cause you to perk up because God says he would do that at the end of time. No one knows the day or the hour, but we can know the season. And so we've discussed verses like this. Jesus and Moses predicted a scattering across the planet and then a regathering. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. He's not talking about the Assyrian or Babylonian captivity. He's talking about being scattered, not to a nation, but the nations of the world. Jesus taught the same truth there in in Luke chapter 21, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. In Jerusalem, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That began in 70 AD and the final cleanup operation under Hadrian in 134 completed it and the Jews were scattered to the ends of the earth. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses gave this warning. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. 1400 years before Christ, he wrote that. Listen to these words. He said, however, here's a promise. If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you. 
And from there, he will bring you back. And so we looked at this next diagram earlier in this series. We saw where the Jewish people were in 1948 on the day that over 600,000 were back in the land. In Egypt, for instance, there were 66,000. In 1948, Jewish people, now less than 200. In Ethiopia, for instance, there was 50,000 today under 7,500. Not to mention Western Europe has literally been emptied out by the Jewish people because the Western Europeans have no room for the Jewish people. There's that growing spirit of anti-Semitism as we're beginning to see grow in our own nation. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 43 and verse 6. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Here's the prophet Ezekiel. He spoke of their regathering in the 11th chapter. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. That's never happened in the history of the world to any nation except Israel. Scattered to a hundred countries, and God brought them back and reconstituted them as a people and reestablished them. Listen to what Ezekiel says in the 38th chapter. After many days, you will be summoned. Here the you is Iran, Turkey, led by Russia. In the latter years, meaning at the end of time, you will come into the land that is restored, that's Israel today, is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. That's one of the messages we gave in this series, the war of Gog and Magog. The very countries are named, but for that war to happen that has never happened in human history, Israel had to be back in the land. And again, this happens in the latter times. The prophet Zechariah lives 400 years before Christ. He also predicted a scattering and a return. Listen to what he wrote after the 70 years of exile were completed. When I scatter you among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries. He's writing this over 100 years after they've already been back in the land, after the Babylonian captivity. He said, I will scatter you among the peoples. They will remember me in far countries. That's what the Jews are doing today. And they, with their children, will live and come back. So for the first time in 1900 years, both the church and Israel exist simultaneously on the earth. Add to that the moral climate that God predicted, like Noah's day, days of moral permissiveness and violence, and like Lot's day, days of moral perversion, add to that days of apostasy where there would be a growing turning away from the truth of Holy Scripture, God is setting the stage and you almost have to be blind not to see it. But most folks today are blind because they have no idea what the Scriptures actually teach on this. But here's why the writer of the Hebrews could say this in Hebrews the 10th chapter. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some. I hope that's not your habit. It's your home live streaming because you didn't feel like getting up. That's disobedience, my friend, as is the habit of some. But he says we are to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day. What day? The day of Christ's return drawing near. In other words, as it gets darker and darker, the saints ought to gather more and more because we need encouragement. 
We need to be like the sons of Issachar who understood their times. We need to see what God is doing. And so this morning, I want to speak on our Father's house. What is it like? We began this in our last time together. We're going to pick up in verse 15. I hope you bring a Bible with you. Revelation 21, beginning now in verse 15. If you don't have one, come to meet the pastor. It's there in the schedule this week. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls, 72 yards, according to, the, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed." And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, sadly today, born-again Christians are largely the byproduct of 20-minute sermons that is mostly fluff and stuff and nonsense. And we've lost our commitment to sola scriptura. The scripture alone should be our authority. Now, historically, Christians believe that, and so they rejected what cultists would come up with, what popes would come up through their encyclical letters saying that these are dogmatic truths. And yet, sadly, in our day, many thoughts about heaven have come from extra-biblical sources that Christians foolishly read. Uh, There is a book written called Heaven is for Real. Here's the cover. Very, very popular. It's about a young man who at the age of four, Colton Burbo, uh, during a surgery when his appendix burst, supposedly went to heaven. And he came back and he gave this fanciful and peculiar uh, details of what he saw in heaven. And it would be fitting for what a four-year-old might indeed come up with. Not, of course, wanting to be outdone that having sold millions and millions of copies. A year later, Thomas Nelson found someone who also had a similar experience in the book, My Trip to Heaven. And by the way, as a pastor, I received in the last decade more junk mail why we should have these books in our church. And they have tailored them not just for adult Bible study, but for youth and yes, even grammar school kids. And yet, sadly, it is, these are books that are inaccurate, but they don't care anymore. Christian publishers, for the most part, have lost all integrity. It's a matter of what sells, what puts money in the pocket. 
And of course, uh, Colton Burbo, who was featured in Heaven is for Real, when he describes uh, uh, what he saw, he said the Holy Spirit is bluish and transparent and almost ghost-like, but he doesn't have wings. By the way, I'm I'm saying this because none of these books agree on what these visions are that these people see. And so by contrast, David Taylor in his book, My Trip to Heaven, he stresses on page 67 that the Holy Spirit is, quote, bright white, has a body and also a huge, beautiful white wings as part of his form. Again, total contradictions. Uh, Add to that, young Colton, he describes what he saw, the battle of Armageddon, I quote. He said, the battle was with Jesus, the angels and the good people going against Satan, the monsters and the bad people. I got to see it happening. I got to see my dad in the battle. Well, if you're here for the Great White Throne Judgment and the study of the Battle of Armageddon, you know that that's sheer made-up nonsense. Not even close to what the Scripture says. But this is what Christian people are buying. And then, of course, we, we mentioned in our last message the boy who came back from heaven. And, of course, uh, he admitted, as a young teenager, he's converted And he admitted he made it all up. It was fraudulent, but he did so for attention. And so another publisher picked it up. Lifeway dropped it. Another publisher picked it up. And they're still selling those books. To his his credit, though, he's grieved over that. All these books are in violation of the warning that God gives in Revelation 22, 19. And so scripture alone must be our authority as to what we believe about heaven. On that day when Jesus encountered Nicodemus in telling him how to get into heaven, he said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. He is reminding Nicodemus that he alone has authority and validity to speak about how to get to heaven because he came from heaven that heaven is indeed his home, and so he can tell him with great authority how it is to go there. And so, again, simply applied, if we understand that we're not to add or subtract to Scripture, we should go into the Bible and find out what God in his apostles wrote. Look, Paul had a vision of heaven, and most of which he couldn't even write about. What makes us think that these guys who supposedly die and go to heaven and come back, that they have authority to write about what God forbade someone like Paul to write about? So what God does reveal about heaven, that's for our perusal, for our study, and to have our minds renewed. And it's important to think about heaven. We're commanded in Scripture, in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above and not on the things that are on earth. And so what we've been learning is from the only authoritative source, namely Holy Scripture. Now, we know that when people hear the word heaven, all kinds of images typically come into mind. But here in Revelation 21, among other passages, and we're using this as our launching pad this morning, we're looking at a number of passages, we find a multifaceted description of what heaven is like. If you were here last time, we learned from verse 1 that heaven is a permanent place. Notice how the chapter opens. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Then I saw, and of course, that's a key expression used throughout the Revelation, 
to introduce us to a new section. Here's a chart to help you remember where we are. The next great event is the rapture. And there's a space of time, we don't know how long, it appears to be short, between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation period. Weeks, days, possibly months. Then that seven-year period takes place. And at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus said, when you've seen these things take place, know that his coming is near. Not here, but near. So there's another space of time, and that's why no one can pinpoint the exact day or the hour, though we can know the season. While the 70th week of a prophecy given by Daniel, known as the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation period, as Jesus calls it, while that is unfolding on the earth, the judgment of believers is taking place in heaven, and the marriage of the Lamb happens between Christ and his bride, the church. Then the second coming happens to the earth. Now, to give us a broader perspective, after the seven-year tribulation, the thousand-year reign of Christ begins. This whole time frame is known as the day of the Lord. There's a bright side, there's a dark side to the day of the Lord as you study scripture. But it mimics a biblical day. A biblical day goes from sundown to sundown. We're in the shadows of darkness. It's gonna get pitch black after the church is removed. It will get very dark for seven years, then Christ will come back literally physically to the earth. He'll rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years, and then we'll go into eternity future. So we're in that section where we're dealing here with eternity future. And so he tells us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And so he's again reminding us that this current planet that you're on this morning is temporary. God is going to burn it into zero, into nothing. He's going to obliterate it. You talk about global warming, God's going to do the ultimate meltdown. And so this new heaven and then this new earth, however, will be permanent. It's also prepared. Look at verse 2. We saw it was a prepared place, not only permanent, but prepared. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So this city is prepared. It's made ready. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. Identical word. And so the fact that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, sits on a new earth, tells you it's already in existence. And indeed it is. It's the place where your loved ones are if they knew the Lord or if they died before an age of accountability. And so here's a slide reminding you of the many names that are given for heaven. This is not complete, but these are the major ones. The Father's house, the third heaven, paradise. There's Old Testament paradise. There's New Testament paradise. The kingdom of God, heaven, the New Jerusalem, the holy city, the bride, and on we can go. And so these all refer to the same place. And in verse 2, he says this holy city is further described, notice, as a bride adorned for her husband. Adorned is the Greek word cosmeto. We get our word cosmetics from it. It describes someone who decorates. It, it's a word that's used to make beautiful. And God is going to make this city absolutely beautiful. It's the place where the bride of Israel will be. It's the place where the bride of the church will be. And so it's described as the bride city. And just as a bride will make herself as beautifully as she can be on her wedding day, 
God will make this place breathtaking, beautiful, beyond all imagination. We saw in addition to it being permanent and prepared, it's a pleasing place. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Right now, as born-again people, we who have been made alive, those of us who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, in the Old Covenant, God had a uh, temple for his people. Under the New Testament, God has a people who are his temple. We are the temple of the living God. And we can worship God today whom we cannot see, but a day is coming when we will see the Lord. And so the text here says, and God himself will be among them. Continual, uninterrupted, perfect, eternal fellowship. The very presence of God himself will be there. So it's not the streets of gold or the gates of pearl that make this place so magnificent. It's the Lord Jesus himself. The triune God will be there filling this place. Verse four, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away and heaven God will wipe away every tear which tells us that initially there is a sobering judgment. Again, it's the judgment of the just not to see if you get into heaven, that's by grace. But as you yield to grace as a saved person and you walk in the spirit, God rewards you for that in eternity. And it's a sobering judgment. Heaven won't be the same for every believer. And so he will wipe tears away as believers suffer loss. But here's the point. The first way of life, the old earth, the old heavens that you see above will be gone. Death, mourning, crying, pain, the language of this realm will be forever gone. Again, you say this is too good to be true. You know what they say about those who say something is too good to be true. As I reminded you, it depends who's doing the same. And this is God doing the same. And as if to anticipate that response, the Spirit of God inspires him in verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. God, who is faithful and true, is the one who is doing the saving. In addition, heaven we saw is a purified place. Look at verse 6. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Salvation is a gift. I spoke to many people yesterday who thought they could earn their way to heaven. Salvation is not earned. It's not merited. It is the gift of God. And unless you receive it like that, you'll never go there. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What a distinction when you come to verse 7 as it begins with this little word, but, or verse 8, the word but. He's drawing a contrast between the first seven verses and what we hit here in verse 8. He's describing those who, as their way of life, they practice these things. These are not overcomers. These are people who are overcome by sin. Why? Because they've never been born from above. He speaks of those who are cowardly. We have people who are ashamed to come down front on a Sunday morning because they're cowardly. 
and their cowardliness is rooted to their unbelief. If you know Christ on the inside, the Bible teaches you'll confess him on the outside, and that will ultimately be seen in baptism. That's why Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He's not making baptism a requirement for salvation, but he is saying, he who believes and openly confesses me before man. How did they do that in the first century? By baptism. It always follows salvation. They're cowardly, they're unbelieving, they're abominable. That is, they're polluted in their thought life, in their body, in their minds. They're murderers. We have more and more murder happening all across our nation. It may be an abortionist who takes the innocent life of a baby. Oh, Planned Parenthood came out last week and bragged that they, they murdered 365,000 babies last year. Wonderful for them. What a judgment is coming. Or it might be heart murder. The one who hates his brother is a murderer. Immoral, pornea. It can refer to premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, transgenderism. Again, he's speaking here, way of life. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. You can commit any kind of sin. But if this is your lifestyle, you have proof positive you've never been saved. Sorcerers, pharmakia, we get our word pharmacy, people who are involved in drugs, alcohol, so forth. Idolaters, those who put someone or something above God. Liars as a way of life, as he'll underscore before we're done. It's also, beyond being permanent, prepared, and pleasing, it's priceless. Look at verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, as John sees it from above, what strikes him is the glory that just permeates from this incredible city. He describes it like a brilliant jewel, Crystal clear jasper are the words he uses. It's flawless. It's magnificent. And of course, it's, this is the place where your loved ones are today if they knew the Lord Jesus is their Savior. So don't feel sorry for them. They're in a place of absolute magnificence. And again, it's this beautiful stones that are refracting their light and filling the city. It's also a private place. Look at verse 12. Uh, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lambs. Now, I think it's significant that the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles are forever imprinted on this eternal city. It's the final blow to covenant theology. Covenant theology says that God was finished with Israel centuries ago, that the church is the new Israel. And the reformers, many of them who came out of, out of Catholicism, embraced what the Catholic church taught, but it's not taught in scripture. There's 12 apostles that led the church. There were 12 tribes that represented God's uh, elect nation out of all the nations of the world. And there's coming a day when we will be one big family. All the Old Testament saints and all the New Testament saints, only those, of course, who are believers, will be there. 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 030. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.